When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the Wonky Show. Are we getting an HE white paper for Christmas? Well, we'll round up the speculation. Uh, we'll look west to what's afoot in Wales. P res is out. We'll discover how PGRs fared in the pandemic. And there's new data out from ONS. It's all coming up. The flexibility the students have afforded over the last 18 months, they are asking for that flexibility to some extent remain. And if we as a sector decide to keep that flexibility, then place, coming to a university, going to a campus, living on campus, may not be as important as we have seen over the last decade. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's going on this week, a trifecta of terrific guests. Uh, in Guildford, Asama Khan is the PBC Education at the University of Surrey. Asama, your highlight of the week, please. It has been fabulous to find all the students who are now really worrying about the exam, but, you know, we're helping them out with their exams, which are coming up, uh, assessments at the middle of the week. Excellent stuff. And in Bournemouth, Debbie Holly is Professor of Learning Innovation at Bournemouth University. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Well, we've had graduation this week and this morning, as I'm here, we're running an online exam for 450 students. So there we go. That's a good week. Fantastic stuff. And in Gloucestershire somewhere, no one's really sure where, David Kernahan is Wonky's Associate Editor. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I live in the world of the work for the moment. Uh, Gigs are back. My band played at the weekend. It was a Halloween gig. We all uh, dressed up. We played Halloween songs. It was fabulous. Lovely. Uh, And uh, we won't be editing in a clip of that later. So, yes, we start this week with a potential white paper. Other than stuff on R&D, there was scant mention of HE in the spending review and budget last week, but that leaves a bunch of questions hanging. And we hear that may well mean that a white paper on HE is coming before Christmas to include things on fees and funding and auger response, maybe PQA, stuff on spelling, statues. Who knows, Debbie? When I was thinking about um, what we could say about this, I actually went back to the original paper, which was presented in Parliament way back in May 20. 2019. And it just struck me that this was a review of both education and funding. And the funding side seems to have kind of taken precedence in conversation since. And um, I think the overview was setting out key principles, saying it's a story of both care and neglect. And this depends on students whether they're the 50% who participate in HE or the rest. And there's a huge disparity. And it just struck me in all the fuss and clatter and policy briefings, we've kind of lost sight of the students. So two principles stood out for me. Um, Principle seven, that post-18 education cannot be left entirely to market forces. And that our post-education, post-18 education needs to be forward-looking. Is there going to be a response? I'm wondering how you can create a compelling narrative. Because if you look at the other policy areas, 
it's quite complex because we've got lifelong learning has kind of, you know, very high on the agenda and expecting all of us to have portfolio careers in the future and then doing one set of skills at 18 and being sorted. So that seems a little dated. So it sounded like lifelong learning seemed to be perhaps a little higher up the political arena. And we've already had announcements on FE funding. So, yeah, I'm not sure with all the other things that are going on and the announcements of cash that have been kind of re-announced about five times, whether there's actually the space there for a compelling narrative to respond that puts the students at the heart. Interesting. I mean, look, DK, um, we, we say this a lot, but um, Olga was kind of commissioned and launched in a very, very different political climate, even though, um, you know, it wasn't actually that long ago in, I mean, it was quite a long time ago, but uh, it just, you know, the politics has completely changed, doesn't it? The thing that people forget about Olga is the amount of it that has been responded to and the amount that is being uh, delivered. The levelling up of FE funding was in Augur. It is happening. The lifelong learning entitlement or similar arrangements were in Augur and are happening. Uh, changes to apprenticeships, making them easier for employers to run, were in Augur and they're happening. So it, although it's a very different time in uh, politics, I mean, the, the, this was supposed to be a quick review after the 2017 election when people got scared about Jeremy Corbyn. Remember that? That was a thing. But we don't really have anything comparable going on at the moment. We do have these big pieces of policy machinery. The lifelong learning entitlement, as I keep screaming to anyone that will listen, is massive. It is going to change everything in 2025. We only really have two years before that. So I've argued on the site this week that if you've already got two years before a big change that you know is happening already and you know that people generally like, because the LLE fundamentally is a good idea, um, it's being um, administered and set up in a particularly ham-fisted way, but it is a good idea. It's the right thing to do. Why on earth would you ruin that and um, spoil the pitch for your own election stuff beforehand to make a change and do some fee cuts or some other fiddling around the edges for two years and just upset everybody? I don't understand why anyone would do that. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it, Osama? Because... You know, one way of reading what happened last week is that, you know, discussions between the Treasury and DFE sort of run out of time. So the Treasury says, OK, well, here's your funding envelope. You want to spend money on your new LLE and on extra students because of demography or whatever. You you, you, you go off and find the money. And, you know, that that creates a bunch of actually relatively unpalatable options, doesn't it? Because one way or another, to deliver on these wider ambitions, the government's going to have to save money on where it currently spends money on HE, and that could mean number controls or less money per head or, you know, there's a bunch of really unpalatable options here. Absolutely. And and it, to be honest, in, in what we are just now discussing, uh, what really worries me, uh, uh, if it crystallizes, is those options of uh, a possible rumor that the tuition fee uh, can go down from 9250 to 8500 What would that mean for higher education? Uh, also, that worries me is uh, the, the very strong provision from the sector on foundation year. Our foundation year has been catalyst in terms of what it could provide for accessibility to higher education, including universities like mine. 
uh, and and whether the funding will dry out from foundation year because there has been some rumor about that as well so overall i really struggle to understand that in the next two years just like as david mentioned if there has is there if they're going to be a kind of fiddling with funding would that really help accessibility to higher education would that really make some of our really um high impacting universities in post 92 sector really survive if the tuition fee goes down to 8500 so there are some major worries and i think politicians should really think carefully before they make these decisions and as an economist can i just say that yes in one hand we need to be a marketized uh, higher education sector which in principle i don't actually really agree but on the other hand you fix the price which economics books people are reading here <laughs> well yes like i mean De- <laughs> yeah right yeah uh, i mean look debbie uh, you know you say that we've kind of lost the um kind of thread of perhaps the the student narrative here the other interesting thing i thought that happened this week was some polling came out from uh, they have the year of the government public first um, that's told us some actually really quite interesting things about students and university finance and maintenance and so on. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing, Jim. Um, I was look when I was looking at the polling. One of the things that really, really stood out was students are clear on why they want to go to university. They see it as a way to bigger and better things. I mean, and what really stands out is education. It's still seen as a way out of poverty for aspiring students from poorer backgrounds, and also how financially aware these students are, and they're rightly horrified at the interest rates leveled leveled on student loans. So there are a real astute bunch coming through. and very interesting in that you know 63 of them 63% say that they want to get a job in a career i want to pursue but that still leaves 40% of them that are wanting to do their own thing they're wanting to go and do something for the love of learning which kind of brings me back to auger a little bit that sort of link about how are we going to square that circle with this sort of perception of low value degrees um and then there's a lot of talk isn't there about oh arts and media they're low value degrees price waterhouse cooper this week 71.3 billion in entertainment and media revenue in 2021 up 5.9 billion it's quite a lot of arts and media isn't that <laughs> but i mean look dk you, you know uh, for every one of the levers the government could pull here to make higher education you know less expensive of course there's a set of arguments that says you know you know don't restrict that particular industry or don't restrict growth there or don't restrict people's ambitions but there does have to be there does have to be some limits don't don't there on on public expenditure and and you know what we spend as a, as a, as a country i mean you know if it was a less marketized system there'd be even more limits so you know we do the question i guess is if there are limits how do you how do you create limits or or would you say well no don't have limits just go for a fully demand led system so for me the big debate underpinning all of this is are we looking at a planned system that provides the economy with the skills it needs in the future and provides for the way that we want the economy to change to have new kind of jobs higher skilled jobs or do we want the system to be based on the choices of 18 year olds going to university 
Now, I'm a little in, unfashionable about this, and I can hear Nick Hillman grinding his teeth as I say it, but I actually favour a more planned system. I think we can be more intelligent about the kind of things that we offer at um, university and the way in which we recruit to them. I think uh, there was a policy tendency in the 90s and early noughties to just think, this is a hard problem, let's just leave it to the um, market. I mean, going back to Osama's um, economists' books, um, I think that, you know, it is um, an information uh, processor, but is it getting us the answer that we want? We've had 20 years of this. We still have a low-skill economy. Uh, productivity hasn't uh, gone up. We need to be doing proper data gathering in the form of what skills are actually needed. What kind of economy are we trying to build? It sounds a little kind of Soviet, if you put it like that. And that's another reason why people find it hard to grab this idea. But I would say that we, 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 we probably need a, um, a larger higher education system than we do, than we currently have. And that's going to expand anyway because of demographics. But, we need to think about what we want to get out of the end of it. And if that means number controls on certain subjects, or if that means incentives to study other subjects, and that's what the economy needs, and we can all agree on that, then I am reluctantly in favour of that. Asama, some of this, um, you know, is about place, right? So, you know, we have had 10 years of relatively geography-blind higher education policy. Uh, you know, the kind of free market will provide places. But, um, you know, we're, we're interested, I think, these days in geography. The government's certainly interested in place and levelling up places and so on. And, you know, I'm struck, for example, if I look at Guildford, there's a lot of bed spaces free at the moment in Guildford. That suggests to me that a hell of a lot of your students have started to commute from south london rather than living in guildford you know what what does all of this mean where where do we go next on place does does place start to matter in a different way in the future do you think with you know a potential leveling up white paper and so on um absolutely i i I do think we need to kind of think about what sort of pedagogy the sector is now really reflecting on Uh, i'm sure debbie has probably a lot to say about uh, uh, as the person in innovation and learning um and and the flexibility the students have afforded over the last 18 months, they are asking for that flexibility to some extent remain. And if we as a sector decide to keep that flexibility, then place coming to a university, going to a campus, living on campus may not be as important as we have seen over the last decades. And another question about place is universities' balance sheet is full of real estates, accommodation. And in one hand, we are higher education provider. We forge knowledge and disseminate that through our lectures and, um, you know, virtual learning environment and seminars and whatnot. But on the other hand, we are all landlords. And I really struggle myself as an academic that why university sector is being a landlord for such a long time. Is this time for us to really rethink space in that way as well? 
and think of a different sort of higher education. I also have some burning comments about David's um, le- you know, last reflection. I think I agree with him, although reluctantly as well, that we need to have a mapping of what skill Britain require to progress into a, this scientific knowledge-based economy. And then we need to kind of match that uh, uh, supply. The polling that DAV was highlighting also highlighted that the students not necessarily see the alternative the auger has provided, you know, the apprenticeship, the technical education as a real alternative to change their social strata. Remember that everybody still perceives higher education that if you get a degree, somehow you will move from one segment of the society to the other. We are a social, socially kind of mobile instrument in, in, in that social reconstruction. And I don't think our 18-year-old are still seeing technical education as an option. So we also have to create another kind of a perception uh, in the market where technical education could be as useful, like Germany, for example. And, you know, I mean, fascinating stuff this week when uh, the Irish over in the Public of Ireland, uh, higher education, well, higher and further education minister, announced a new technical university in an otherwise higher education cold spot in the Republic of Ireland. And whether or not, you know, we end up in, in that space, who knows, uh, as we hurtle towards a uh, white paper in theory before Christmas. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm James Kerr, Head of Sustainability, Policy and Civic Engagement at the University of Liverpool and a contributing editor to Wonky. This week, I took a look at the R&D announcements in the Budget and Spending Review and considers what it means to get to £20 billion of public funding for R&D by the end of this Parliament. Although this is down from the initially promised £22 billion and is not without economic consequence, this still represents a huge funding increase for the sector. In conjunction with other sensible measures, like expanding the scope of R&D tax credits and the commitment to funding Horizon or alternative funding should it not be realised, it is clear that this is a good budget for higher education. Some of the challenges still remain of how the sector will have enough absorptive capacity to get such a huge increase, and as we await for papers like the Leveling Up White Paper, the devil will as always be in the detail. Now, meanwhile this week, uh, the Tertiary Education and Research Wales Bill has been introduced into the Senate. DK, what on earth is going on in the West? Well, this is something that we've been expecting for a while. The, um, a draft of this paper, uh, of this bill, was released in uh, the summer of last year, and there was a big six-month-long um, consultation on it. So this is the apparatus that sets up the... Uh, tertiary education uh, system in Wales for the future. There'll be a new uh, commission for tertiary education and Wales, which is officially pronounced CETA. Um, and that will have responsibility for everything that happens post-compulsory education. So apprenticeships, they're very big on the idea of the Welsh apprenticeship as a distinct thing from what happens in England. Uh, six forms, uh, higher education and further education are all going to be mashed into this. Um, it's broadly sensible stuff. It's the good stuff from Scotland, the outcomes agreements, that kind of thing, and the good stuff from England in terms of having a basic register and knowing who everybody is. It's not an expansionary measure like it was in England. They're not looking for lots of places to um, start up little 
startup independent universities and join the system. That's still possible, but it's not what they're, the, the, this is uh, designed for. And they're not about to design an outcomes-based regulator. They're going to keep the old traditional way of having the QAA come round every six years and do a report that makes recommendations on teaching quality enhancement, as happens in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, but for some reason not in England. Uh, so this is all sensible stuff and everybody in Wales is largely running around congratulating themselves for how sensible they are. Um, but I w- it was interesting to watch this appear in the Welsh plenary at the Senate. Uh, you may even be able to clip some audio on this, Jim, if you want. So it was introduced by Jeremy Miles, the Minister for Education and Welsh Language, He sets it up primarily about an investment in the Welsh system for the the good of the Welsh economy and Welsh society, um, which is interesting in in Scotland particularly and also in Wales. You do hear ministers uh, give kind of a a full-throated support to the higher education system, which perhaps you don't get as often. If we are serious, as this government is, about narrowing educational inequalities, expanding opportunities and raising standards, then we must break down barriers, secure easier learner pathways and continue to invest in research and innovation. Two other little twiddles in there about uh, more flexibility and less uh, bureaucracy. There's some bits of uh, tidying up of the original proposals there too. What's interesting uh, there's a response from the Conservative spokesperson on uh, on education, Laura Ann uh, Jones, and she says again, please clip this and cut this out, Jim, if if you can do it. Um, but I do. Uh, the tertiary education uh, sector is still recovering. Sorry, my throat's going. After 18 months of serious disruption, um, education providers are finding themselves exhausted as they try to keep schools and colleges open uh, during high levels because of high levels of staff absence. So I do have to question the timing of this and perhaps ask why now? Why uh, when we're at a critical point of this pandemic and embarking on a new curriculum? Um, And I'd appreciate the Minister's reassurance uh, on that. (laughs) The Conservatives in Wales, at least, have figured, you know what, the education system is pretty... um, battered and bruised and uh, bloody maybe we should leave things alone a bit and let them sort themselves out before we come on and do other things it's a lovely <laughs> lovely speech and i strongly advise people go and have a look at the whole um debate which is uh conducted in a spirit of collaboration and optimism wow fascinating stuff debbie one of the objectives here is a more sort of coordinated and integrated tertiary education system you know the kind of bringing together of post-16 uh, at least post-16 strategy, if not, you know, kind of forcing mergers late Andrew style 10 years ago. But, you know, a, a kind of more integrated uh, system at post-16. And obviously, in the past few weeks, Michelle Donnellan has not only been elevated to be able to kind of sit in and watch Cabinet, even if she can't vote, uh, but also to become the Minister for Further and Higher Education. Is this, is, is this, is this kind of move towards tertiary... Uh, kind of integrated tertiary system inevitable or are there still big barriers do you think? I think there's still big barriers but there's lots of things that we can be doing and I think by having these artificial divides um, we're not playing to our strengths. I mean if you look in in England you know we're going to all have these apprentices and FE colleges are going to deliver 
if you actually look at what's happening in the FE colleges, there's 20,000 staff being squeezed out over the last 10 years. Who's going to deliver all of this, you know, in the, in the, in the English side? Um, I do like this, this kind of way in which the Welsh bill is phrased. And it's much more about sort of, um, closeness and collaboration rather than the distance and, da and dashboarding. And I think it's the collaboration that, that's going to really make the difference. So, for example, if we look at students coming in with a BTEC, starting to have, and students coming in with A levels, they've got very, very different skill sets. But if we've got much better communications and scaffolding to link that transition, we know that they'll, they'll be less likely to drop out. And I think that's where we lose so many is they can't make those successful transitions from one sector to the other. And there's very different expectations from the, from the different groups of staff. So, you know, as Sama was saying, that kind of bridging foundation year or these summer schools or, you know, um, some of the work that people like Michelle Morgan have been doing about transitioning, I think that's kind of where we need to be looking at our value principles and thinking about this closeness and collaboration. Um, having said all that, I'm just looking at the terminology. You're going, they're going to be charged with promoting, encouraging, contributing. Yeah, how are you going to actually nail those down to outcomes? Because at the end of the day, you do have that kind of economic and welfare and you've, you've, you've got to square all of it don't you I think probably Osama can say more about the economics than I can I mean Osama this is interesting isn't it because you know we have in England and you know as, as DK always says it's what you shouldn't do the moment you know Wales has some higher education policies it's to automatically compare it to England but you know we have in England a regulator that is explicitly these days about regulating a, a free-ish not completely free as you point out a free-ish market um, but, you know, here in Wales, that is not the intention. It's not being positioned as the regulator of a free-ish market. It is the coordinator of a sector in the Welsh national interest. And that is, you know, that there are differences, therefore, even though some of the powers will be the same, there are kind of really important differences in kind of tone, mood, music, and potentially activity from this kind of integrated body uh, in Wales. Yeah, um, yeah, I can clearly see that, but I would be slightly controversial today, and and I can't I can't quite think of myself in a morning going to do uh, say something which probably favours some of the policies that OFS uh, come out with. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting day for me, I would say. Um, you know, when we when we talked about you know dashboarding, there are some good things about dashboarding. The sector knew the BAME awarding gap exists for more than three decades. And we did not do anything about it until the dashboarding started. So my challenge back to more collaborative, hefty type of a, a policy that's just been launched in Wells is, would that really deliver result? Now, I know that I sound profoundly like a pro-vice-chancellor of a university, but I must say the sector has a tendency of sticking to all ways. We all know that. We sometimes take pride that our sector is thousand-year-old, kings and queens have changed, and we persisted. But there is a pride in that, but there is a problem in that as well. And my question is, how the wealth system 
which was there in England as well, didn't quite deliver some of the fundamental problem of learning and teaching and student welfare, is going to ensure that. I'm all up for collaboration. I absolutely like that. But there has to be some level of accountability for institutions. After all, we're a public institution. We need to offer education equitably and by looking after the interests of the students. So should I be the pompous professor? Go away from my door. I can't see you as a student because I have important research to do. Or should I really pay attention because somebody's dashboarding? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of questions that we haven't got time to get into. Great stuff. Uh, now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. It's fair to say that people have sometimes criticised our universities. But this has taken different forms over the years. If you were to turn to the beginning of the 19th century... Assault would come from the pages of the Edinburgh Review, a radical publication that would poke fun at Oxford and Cambridge, but particularly at Oxford. There's a big debate amongst historians as to just how bad the universities of Oxford and Cambridge had been in the 18th century. It's probably coloured by the reformers all trying to say that they needed to change things because they had been so bad. But the Edinburgh Review rode uh, the, uh, the request for reform at the beginning of the 19th century on just how poor the two universities had become. And so, in 1808 and 1809, they launched a series of reviews, ostensibly of books, but actually having a pop at Oxford. So, in the review, they said, The dictates of Aristotle are still listened to as infallible decrees, and where the infancy of science is mistaken for its maturity. This provoked a response from the University of Oxford complaining about this. It had tried in its new examination um, statute, to set out a modelling of its curriculum. Undergraduate studies would be useful. But how would they take this forward? They'd actually responded to uh, earlier events in taking the decision to reform its statutes because it was the French Revolution, according to Lawrence Brockless, that had moved the abdominal board to act, fearing that students had little incentive to study hard would fall easy prey to revolutionary agitators. The heads proposed a new examination statute in 1800 that was intended to keep the adolescents' noses to the grindstone. It's worth noting, of course, that an examination statute in 1800 is quite a slow reaction to the French Revolution 11 years before, but Oxford takes its while to get round to things. So the response from Copleston, who was uh, at Oriel College, frames one of the great defences of liberal education. In it, he tries to say why Oxford was right in not dealing with practical subjects and sets out the teaching method that they should use. He writes, Never let us believe that the improvement of chemical arts, however much it may tend to the augmentation of national riches, can supersede that use of the intellectual laboratory where the sages of Greece explored the hidden elements of which man consists. The idea is that by studying the classics, we can learn about human nature and not worry so much about the things at the moment. Copleston goes on. Never, while the world lasts, will it be wholly disabused of that specious error, that the more there is crammed into a young man's mind, whether it stays there or not, whether it is digested or not, still the wiser he is. Brockless comments that, of course, what he's trying to do is justify that undergraduates' moral and intellectual development was an asset more precious than knowledge, And this sets Oxford off on a path to try to defend its classical studies to the 19th century, which slowly erodes, of course, and slowly Oxford has the kind of practical subjects subjects that Copleston would have hated. The Edinburgh reviewers were right in the end. Oxford did need to change. And therefore, that criticism that comes from outside 
then in journal articles, now probably more likely in, in blogs and, and tweets, reminds us that we need to think about what we're doing and make sure that we get it right and not get stuck, as potentially the University of Oxford did in the 18th century. Now, mental health is the number one reason for postgraduate researchers to consider leaving their programme. That's according to the results of this year's postgraduate research experience survey, Asama. What caught your eye in PRES? Um, it's interesting that the PRES hasn't actually really crashed as much as NSS. Uh, or PETIS for that matter, the Postgraduate Taught Experience Survey, so which clearly shows that Britain still hold quite a substantial edge in training the future researcher, scientist, social scientist and artist. And I think that's a great testament that despite of this horrendous pandemic that we are in that crippled us, despite of lack of access to resources, lack of access to conferences, having the confidence uh, built up as a postgraduate researcher in terms of your credibility of presenting your research, making your argument, we maintain in most of the cases quite a good result as measured by the advanced HEPRES um, survey. But as you just highlighted, unfortunately, mental health, illness and well-being and welfare remains the key issue here as well. And it, it was clear from the survey that the institution who has a clear remit of supporting their postgraduate research community uh, with very targeted support with their mental health and well-being, those students are statistically uh, less likely to drop out of PhDs. In fact, the survey also showed that uh, the, the the absolute kind of number uh, in the survey of student thinking of dropping out of PhD has actually rather reduced compared to 2020 in the latest survey, which is really interesting. Um, and it might be argued that maybe they just thought that I need to really stick around and do this, you know, PhD. We, we all know how it feels, many of us. And, and they just probably thought that, you know, just stick around with it, finish my PhD and start my career. Maybe that might be the reason. But overall, uh, um, I, I was quite happy to see the result. I must say that it, it maintained quite a bit of uh, uh, its, um, you know, the credibility of the sector that we train PhDs well. But one thing, the only thing that really crashed is research environment and professional development. There has been a lot of comments, at least, for example, in the Sari Press result of uh, are the supervisors trained to develop their professional career? Many of the supervisors are lecturers, senior lecturers. They're even themselves figuring out how to develop their career. So the question is, uh, you know, how do we support our students coming out of pandemic, giving them the confidence, creating the research environment, although the virus is still circulating, and what can we do for them? And I think, you know, that's, that's the thing we need to focus our mind on. I took a slightly different slant, I think, on looking at this. Um, this idea of managing professional development, if you dig down into it, it's really they're wanting help with their post-PhD careers. And we know that that's a real issue, particularly for people going into sciences with all of these labs and short-term contracts, one after another, after another, after another. So I think there's something about that. We can't create those post-career opportunities, you, you know. So th that was that was one thing. The second thing I had a really good look at was um, the chapter on COVID. Really interesting. <sighs> We know that satisfied students tend to be have better health and well-being. So 20% disagreed about the communications on COVID being clear and appropriate. And 33% of institutions, a third of students, didn't feel that they got the mental health support that they wanted and they needed. 
and they didn't get the support they needed, 44%. So I'm not sure we've done as well. And I'm not quite sure with the, the attrition rate. Certainly, a lot of students that I know have asked for, you know, interruptions to study. So I don't think that shows in the data. And I also know that, you know, funders aren't saying to us, oh, you know, you've got a student doing a three-year doctorate in a clinical science, just give them another six months of funding, just give them another year of funding, that's absolutely fine. So I think there's a wider narrative there. DK, the, 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 one of the things I struggle with when, when you know, and I, and I guess to some extent this is true with the NSS as well, with that bank of questions we got on COVID, is separating out what reasonably you could pin on universities and what, you know, was just because of COVID. And, and you know, it's, it's you know, th th that, that means the, in the findings when you kind of ask students about their experiences during COVID are interesting, but it's actually really hard to work out, I think, sometimes what the, what you can actually kind of take from them in terms of action points. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's true. And the one uh, uh, downside of the PRES and the PTES, although they're otherwise great surveys and a really useful snapshot, they're not representative overall of all postgraduate research or postgraduate taught students. Uh, there's a lot more... Um, there's a lot of universities that don't participate. There's, uh, students who do complete the survey tend to be full time. And there's a lot more part time students in postgraduate research and postgraduates taught that obviously are not. And there is a preponderance of all, all the students that respond to this, uh, that, uh, do, that doesn't reflect the same. So you're getting a slightly skewed look. Um, in terms of, um, how much you can say this is down to an institution, how much of this is down to COVID. I was struck by the retention figures. So the year of COVID 2020, there were 27.7% of the students that responded that had considered leaving their course. That went uh, down this year. Now, it's easy to think, okay, this is, and I mean, this is the argument that was made in the report. They would say, okay, this is because students are really appreciating the blended learning and we have done some stuff to sort out, um, health and welfare and mental health support. Uh, but on the other hand, this is a very difficult time to be job hunting. Um, if you're looking for the particular kind of graduate jobs or even it, Indeed, God forbid, uh, jobs in academia that you might be interested in. Um, and, uh, it is, uh, students who are, have not considered leaving their course might either have been, um, waiting desperately to do a course after the restrictions linked to the pandemic have ended, or, uh, they, uh, might just not have anything else that they sensibly want to do. A lot of people took the time over um, the uh, large number of lockdowns that we've had in recent months to think about their career, to think about what they want to do. And when you've reached the conclusion that you want to do more training and more study and to take your career in a new direction, uh, that's not something that you give up lightly. But still, it is difficult to unpick these effects and we do need to bear them in mind. This is another year that's going to have an asterisk next to it. Uh, I think I just wanted to say that there are universities, I can name one, Lancaster, for example, are providing really good quality postgraduate researcher career advice. So I completely get Debbie's point about, you know, sometimes the typical standard employability and career service doesn't really cater for what the PGR students can pursue afterwards. But there are good models 
models in the sector. And I think, you know, in the, se- in, in the spirit of collaboration that we were discussing in the last topic, maybe we should just learn from each other and see what we could do for our PGRs. Uh, but I couldn't agree more with David that um, PG, uh, the P- press and the PTES surveys does not have as representative voice as NSS do, does for the undergraduates. And not long now until uh, a PGR New Deal proposal from UKRI. So let's keep our eyes uh, open for that. Good. Now, uh, finally this week, ONS, the Office for National Statistics, has been surveying undergraduates again. Uh, and there's good news on vaccines. But again, some concerning findings on mental health, Debbie. Well, mental health and well-being and digital well-being is something very close to my heart. And um, I'm just sighing, along with what Osama was saying earlier on, this intersectionality. If we just look at some of these reports, the Citizens Advice Pandemic Survey, Student Minds and their pandemic Life in a Pandemic Survey, Office for Students on Student Experience, Student Union Survey, Every time, black minority ethnic students, those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, the disabled, they can't pay for fast internet, they haven't got the kit. 104,000 students, 4%, couldn't get any internet at all during the pandemic. You know, is it surprising that their mental health and well-being and stress levels are going up? Really interestingly, some of the tech we offload onto them with our clunky systems are causing a huge amount of a huge amount of stress. And I was just thinking, how have we responded as a sector? And I've actually done a bit of work on this, modeling what universities do. And what they've basically done is create a suite of get help over here through this link for all kinds of digital health and well-being resources. And so students are pointed to apps for rest and relaxation. There's a huge funding call out at the moment to evaluate the effectiveness of some of these apps. There's only a very few that have been clinically trialled by the NHS and tested and evaluated and on the NHS app bank as clinically useful. If you just have a look at the huge number of untested on the marketplace that a lot of student services across the sector have put up for students to go and access help, it's just... It, you know, it, it it really isn't on. So I think mental health and well-being needs to take a far more central space in in our discussions. Asama, it's uh, you know, re- really interesting stuff that uh, Debbie raises, p- partly because one of the things I was talking to a student union about earlier this week was if it's the case, for example, that now vast numbers of students are displaying you know significant and alarming levels of anxiety that the kind of previous approach of the sector which would be to treat mental health uh, as a sort of individual thing where people go and see you know a counselor or whatever that that, that doesn't cut it does it we, we need collective solutions that look at what higher education is and to some extent wider society is doing to to kind of exacerbate or cause the anxiety surely Absolutely. I could not agree more with what you just said. Uh, I, I think the days of uh, you are showing some sign of mental health, go and see the well-being centre and a counsellor will have a counselling is not really the solution. We are a diverse community. And if I just reflect on myself, when I first came to this country from Bangladesh, I didn't have any awareness. See, if I would have gone through a mental health uh, stress point and my teacher told me that go and talk to the counselling, I would have said, why would I talk to a stranger? 
because that's the cultural connotation. So in a way, we, we really have to not force the typical solution that we have forced over the last few decades. Of course, when something is beyond uh, uh, the normal stresses of life, we need to find a way of supporting them through proper professionals, no doubt about it. But this is time for university to really properly reflect on whether our pedagogies are caring. There is a lot of literature out there on uh, pedagogy for care or mattering. You know, how does it matter to be a student in an institution? And I know that a lot of people, particularly our science colleagues, probably have said that these are pink and fluffy research and we don't know how, to, how that applies. But they are very good quality research in terms of understanding our pedagogy and what it does. For example, exam. I'm so glad that exam has gone in the backseat over the last 18 months, but it seems like everybody's keen to bring it back. So the question is, what does exam do to our student community? Does it really help learning or does it exacerbate their anxieties? In the same way, universities should take responsibility. We should take responsibility to equip our student to deal with normal stresses of life. So where does resilience and resourcefulness come into the curriculum? Can we not weave in these things into our curriculum? And it is difficult sometimes when we are so fixated with content. We just have to understand that we are not just training students to be a physicist, to be a banker, to be a vet or medic. We are actually making them good citizens who can look after themselves and good professionals who are resilient. And that's an important thing universities should get on with. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Debbie, Asama, DK, Mike Ratcliffe, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.